0: Hello and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where me and my co-host Daniel Erson are trying to make sense of a very chaotic world run by a lot of swampy people and agenda-driven special interests. Each week, we bring someone onto the show who can shed a little light on how their own efforts to expose hypocrisies and contradictions in the system are helping us collectively challenge it, as Robert Plant once sang, Little by Little. This week, we talked to Daniel Bessner, a podcaster and professor at the University of Washington, about his recent article in Harper's Magazine, Empire Burlesque. But first, there is a fire raging in Baghdad, the green zone in particular, and not just figuratively. As of Tuesday morning, scores of people were killed, hundreds wounded, as protesters of popular Shia cleric Muqtada al-Sadr breached the green zone and overran the government buildings there on Monday. For 24 hours, fires raged as well as gunfire exchanged, while non-governmental organizations were ferrying out their people in helicopters. The protest Monday came after Sadr announced, not for the first time, that he was withdrawing from political life, closing up shop after he had led the sit-ins outside of the, the parliament complex for weeks. His Shia faction has been in direct opposition with another Shia faction since October, when his party's majority in parliament couldn't form a government. He ordered his people to quit parliament, and so the fight has ensued. Iraq now, right now does not have a functioning government, and as of this recording, um, its most fortified government center, the Green Zone, which was built by the United States during the war, is the site of some of the biggest violence in years. By Tuesday afternoon, however, as of this recording, Sadr has already called his protesters to leave. So, Dan, what exactly did the U.S. invasion and so-called reconstruction of that country really accomplish if after 20 years they are in a constitutional crisis and still resolving their problems with machine guns and violence?
1: Uh, Well, this is one of the the enduring legacies of the invasion and the occupation. It's the political mess that that we left behind, uh, in part because of the, the actors that our occupation then chose to empower uh, when we were in Iraq. Uh, I mean, one of the, the enduring rifts that continues to plague Iraqi politics today is the rift between Sadr and his forces and, and those of Nouri al-Maliki. Nouri al-Maliki, of course, was uh, at one time the, the U.S. preferred candidate uh, to lead the Iraqi government. Uh, he was the one uh, in charge at the end of the Bush years. Uh, and into the early Obama years, and he was the one uh, whose government policies were, uh, in in some circles, are believed to have been uh, responsible, at least in part, for uh, helping to generate the rise of ISIS uh, in northern Iraq. Uh, uh, Sadr and Maliki, of course, have lots of bad blood, because Maliki was in charge of the government that suppressed Sadr and his militias back then, and so as a result, Sadr refuses to have anything to do with any political forces uh attached to Maliki. Uh, and of course, uh, Sahar is also uh, very uh, pointedly opposed to more Iranian influence in Iraq, and so will we'll not want to be part of a government that is dominated by Iran-backed uh, Shia parties. And so uh, really all of the, the political problems that we unleashed with the invasion and then perpetuated with our occupation policies uh, are, are still with us, or still with the Iraqis today, and uh, and so it's, it doesn't look like there's going to be any uh, return to stability anytime soon. Uh, and the latest round of violence probably portends more political dysfunction and upheaval in the months to come uh, because I, I don't see how that rift gets closed uh, without, uh, without more uh, open conflict.
0: Uh, we had a great piece on Responsible state, Statecraft by Stephen Simon last week who broke down the dynamics of the situation. And the bottom line was that, you know, if the if the United States had heard its credibility and had not, you know, maintained serious diplomatic ties and connections with the government there before, it really screwed it up when it took out, assassinated Qasem Soleimani, uh, the revered, Iranian general of the Kuds Force in 2020. And so that has left the United States in a real, like, you know, um, emasculated situation where it can't do anything. It has no uh, influence over the political process right now. It certainly has no influence with the Shia factions. And so all it could do is stand by and maybe offer some statements and, and 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 put out a hand once in a while and and say, hey guys, let's let's tamp down the hostility here and the tensions. But really, it doesn't have any uh, effective um, use uh, for you know a, you know the diplomatic um, tools that it could or should have after 20 years of being part of the reconstruction of that country. You would think that um, we would have better seat at the table, but we don't. And if we didn't before killing the uh, Iranian general, the, the top Iranian general, um, on Iraqi soil, by the way, uh, was it, it sort of sealed the deal against um, any real relationship there.
1: Right, well, we, through, through the, those uh, attacks that happened during the Trump administration, the, the U.S. Uh, soured its relationship uh, with the Iraqi government of course, uh, prompted calls from the Iraqi parliament uh, for all U.S. forces to leave Iraq. And and I believe the Iraqi government still expects that departure to happen uh, at some point. Um, of course, some U.S. troops still remain uh, ostensibly in a training role, not a combat role, according to the Biden administration. But as uh, I think as Anel Shalin has pointed out, uh, that's really just a, a relabeling of the same mission Uh, to make it more palatable uh, for both the Iraqis and the administration. Um, uh, Killing Soleimani, as you said, uh, removed a figure who had tremendous influence with a lot of these militias and with the the Shia parties in Iraq, Uh, and he he may have been able to use that influence to calm things down or at least keep things under control. As it is, uh, things have been much more chaotic and unstable uh, since that attack, on him in January 2020, uh, and his successor at the IRGC is not uh, someone with the same personal credibility with these groups to be able to have the same kind of effect uh, in in reining them in. And so you have uh, a very uh, messy, uh, situation uh, that, as you say, uh, our own actions have helped to make more so. And so it's it seems like it's, it's high time for us to to pull our forces out because we're not actually contributing to any stability there by keeping them there. Uh, And to to recognize that we, we basically lost our chance to have a constructive relationship in that country uh, many years ago. And maybe we can slowly cultivate one again later, but it will have to come after uh, we, we withdraw and, and allow for sort of a decent interval to let, Iraqis determine their own future.
0: Yeah, what's always bothered me about the Iraq war and its aftermath is that we didn't do the heavy lifting after the war to establish a real diplomatic presence in Baghdad. And it was as if all of our efforts were put into getting the military out and saving face and allowing people like David Petraeus and John McCain and others to say that the surge worked and now it's up to the Iraqis to, you know, to determine their own futures. And we went home and then shifted all of our resources to the quote unquote good war in Afghanistan and just barely, just barely waved at them in the rear view mil- mi- mirror and this is even with a Democratic administration move, moving in, headed by Hillary Clinton and her team, who was going to, you know, reshape the State Department and put all sorts of resources into diplomacy. But here was a country that was sitting right in front of their face that was in super need of all of that um, non-military assistance and work and effort, and we didn't do a fraction and i and i would love to have somebody on the show who could prove me wrong but in all my reporting and writing and reading on this issue i feel like we built we literally built a multi-million dollar complex there and then didn't put anybody in it and so you have this green zone which was was supposed to be you know the the flagship of our um re you know reconstruction and assistance and helping this country rebuild after saddam hussein and it's just a shell it's it's huge footprint but there's nothing in it except you know these iraqi you know government buildings that are being overrun and i said i think that says a lot about the obama administration i didn't really expect much from a republican administration because they don't seem to care about that stuff (laughs) i'll be honest the stereotype But I thought maybe the Obama administration would say, hey, we can prove to the rest of the world that non-military solutions to our problems and this whole idea of multilateralism and reaching out to our allies and being an exemplar of diplomacy um, starts here, right here in in Baghdad. And that never happened. And now we're seeing the fruits of that, the rotten fruits of that, I believe.
1: And I think... The the fact that you, it it doesn't matter which party is in charge shows that this really is an American failing overall. Uh, it's it's a a habit that our government has and, and our, our country has of taking intense interest in a country for a few years or maybe even a decade and then uh, you know, whether because it's seen as a threat or is it seen as extremely important to our vital interests or a larger strategy at least that's what we tell ourselves and then within a few years or a decade, we get tired of it, we we begin to realize that the threat wasn't real or wasn't as great as advertised, um, and, and that the country isn't actually as important to us as we thought it was, and then we we just wash our hands of it and walk away and never think about it again. We're seeing that already happening with Afghanistan after just one year after the departure of our forces, um, and then of course with Iraq. Uh, we still have nominally a, a few thousand people there, but obviously the, the attention of both the government and the public uh, has waned significantly uh, si- simply uh, because there, there's, no, there's no real belief in Washington or, or even in the country, I suppose, uh, in, in the kind of sustained engagement that you would need to have uh, to continue cultivating a relationship when it's no longer seen as part of a war effort. And so this, this constant bias in favor of military action and intervention, uh, I think, has conditioned a lot of people, both in and out of Washington, to think that once the troops leave, essentially we're not going to have anything more to do with this country. And we we, we see engagement so much in terms of military uh, action and intervention that once that ends, uh, we there, there's no room in, in anyone's minds for any other kind of engagement. Um, and, of course, it, the in the meantime, in the time when we were intensely focused on that country, we end up doing tremendous amount of damage and then leaving the place in a ruin and then going home and forgetting about it because uh, it, it finally dawns on us that it was never actually that important to us in the first place. And so the, it seems to me the solution, I mean, we can we can hope that there will be more spending and more investment in diplomacy and development down the road. But realistically, we know that there's not much interest in putting more resources in that area. Uh, What we need to do then is to stop working the countries in the first place and and stop obsessing over them uh, and and treating these small states as if they are threats to us when they aren't. Uh, And learning to, if we're going to just neglect them, then at least make it a benign neglect. And not not neglect them after we've already destroyed them,
0: yeah, and we really did destroy Iraq, and you know, we forget that even after the u s military left when uh, in two thousand and nine, they had to go back in two thousand and fourteen to fight ISIS. But it was a quiet little war. It was basically us conducting airstrikes to give the Iraqi military cover and to basically fill in for the massive gaps in their capability. And what happened was while the United States was way beyond Iraq at that time, you know, we helped to destroy whole cities like Mosul, which is still mm. in ruins today. I did a piece was it like last year about Mosul and the refugees and the fact that they don't have a functioning like um, government there, or at least a government that actually can pay salaries and, and pay to, um, to reconstruct landscapes there. And I, I hadn't realized that the city was still in ruins and there were bodies still buried under the buildings that the, the local governments just still didn't have the wherewithal. To, to, to get the bodies out there and start fixing things. Um, it was like as though it was just um, an apocalypse. And we played a role in that. We would say, well, we had to get rid of ISIS, so we had to level the city. Um, but we just turned around and left and never, and to this day have not really um, paid um, and in terms of any um, assistance to redevelop that, that city, much less take care of the, the, the humanitarian crisis that has ensued. There are still people living in camps um, who are, are finally going back and facing hostilities because of the whole ISIS thing. I mean, it's, it's a real um, nightmare for Iraqis. And we have long, long forgotten about it um, as, a, as an American um, you know, society. And that's that's nice for Washington because they don't have to pay and they don't have to be reminded of their failures. But I suggest we, we 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 try to to recall and remember the lessons here as we're all you know rah rah you know let's give more weapons to Ukraine and then watch that country be destroyed um, through um, a military intervention. Ukrainians need to to take heed and say hey. This is how, like you said, this is how America rolls. We go in, we help destroy a place, and then we walk away. So yeah, we might be given billions today, but when, you're, when your country is in rubble and ruin, don't really expect that the United States is gonna care much about that.
1: Our guest today is Daniel Bessner. He is associate professor in international studies at the University of Washington, non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute, and a contributing editor at Jacobin. He is an intellectual historian of U.S. foreign relations and the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. He is also co-host of the American Prestige podcast, along with Derek Davison. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Uh, yeah, it's our pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks for making the time. Uh, You wrote a very interesting essay for Harper's uh, earlier this summer. Uh, In that essay, you discussed the debate going on uh, even now between liberal internationalists and advocates of restraint. Uh, and You defined the the disagreement between them in an interesting way, I I thought. Uh, You said, The fundamental disagreement between the two schools of thought is this. Liberal internationalists believe that the United States can manage and predict foreign affairs. Restrainers do not. For those of us in the latter camp, the withering away of the American century cannot be reversed. It can only be accommodated. And I, I think that gets to an important point about how the different camps understand U.S. power and, and the, the limits of that power. Uh, so how should the U.S. adapt to the end of the American century, so-called, and the reality of declining American power?
2: Um. It's interesting, uh, Daniel, that you you keyed in on that, because I think that was an original contribution of the piece that most people usually don't talk about, that a lot of U.S. foreign policy, I think, could be uh, traced uh, to its origins to really the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. I won't even try to pronounce the, the fin de siècle, as they say, the fin de siècle. Um, in the sense that this was a moment when a lot of the techniques and technologies of modernity led people across the political spectrum from the far left to the far right to believe that they would be able to manage political affairs in ways that they that they really hadn't previously and and from that maelstrom i think the, the what turned out to be the mo- most victorious ideology was what we might call broadly speaking liberalism um and and in the united states i think to some sense modern conservatives and, and modern small l liberals are all operating under the rubric of liberalism um and so one of the major tenets of that position was that the United States would be able to manage world affairs. Um, and I think that that empirical history has proven otherwise. And ironically, a, a lot of the people who initially began to critique that uh, were, were on the radical right people like Friedrich Hayek, people like Ludwig von Mises, this entire Methoden strike that happened in the first half of the 20th century at various moments. Um, and I think that that it's interesting now because you see people who self-identify as leftists like myself a- embracing what hundred years ago might've been considered a rather conservative criticism of the ability to basically socially manage affairs. Um, and I think that it, it's interesting because I think we would have to disaggregate because in some sense, ironically, I think we have the tools and technology <laughs> for central planning with something like Amazon, right? You have the algorithm noting at every second what people are buying, where they're buying it from, et cetera. While at the same time, it's been pretty demonstrated pretty, pretty positively to my to my understanding that you can't control politics qua politics like that or international affairs like that so i know that wasn't quite your question but i wanted to key in on that should i move on to your question about what should the u.s do yeah sure um so i think the u.s should basically accommodate new material realities and and appreciate that whether it's 10 years, 25 years, 50 years, 75 years, or 100 years, it's not going to be able to dominate international affairs like it did after 1945 or after 1991. So if that's the the, the long-term, almost inevitable conclusion of U.S. hegemony, then we should be dealing with that reality as opposed to trying to just ignore it. And so what does that mean on the ground? Um, I think it basically means security transitions around the world. Uh, I I, I, in, an, in an ideal world, if the United States left a region, that, that wouldn't lead to war. But I think that is not we don't live in an ideal world and i think there is a form of responsibility even if i don't like the american empire for the united states not to just cut and run from places i take that obligation seriously so i think we should basically engage in decades long security transitions however i, I am an internationalist <laughs> i'm a globalist but in, in in the old sense of the word not in the, right. the modern sense of the word Um, and I do think that something that could be done to, to sort of start building the type of world that I would like to see is trying to form an ever greater union between the United States, Mexico, and Canada, like an actually democratic union across borders. The fact that these countries are major trading partners anyway, that that there's real shared senses of identity. So it's basically trying to build the type of world I would like to see here more at home, a social democratic world, a, a world that takes borders less seriously, um, at home as opposed to trying to do it abroad. So sorry I talked for a while, but that's the long and the short of it. Maybe the no, long that's, of it.
1: That's fine. Uh, and talking about the, the, the changed material realities, uh, as, as you noted in the essay, the, the American century was basically an aberration created by the circumstances of World War II and its aftermath. And then it kept going uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union for, for lack of having a, a serious... Uh, adversary to to oppose it, um, but that's those conditions are now changing, uh, and, and we can't we can't summon up the the world that existed uh, in 1945 or 1950. Uh, so if it can't be uh, recreated, uh, we will have to adapt uh, to a new reality. Uh, but we, what we see in Washington are a lot of people, I guess, in a, in some sort of denial about that, uh, and a lot of people keep talking about creating a new American century. Uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, we had uh, pro-war uh, ideologues talking about that very explicitly. But I, I think there are, there are still a lot of people who are saying something similar today: that the future will either be a new American century or a Chinese century, and those are those are the choices. Um, well, what are the I sometimes.
2: I am in awe of you people who spend your lives in Washington, D.C. Like, I just can't imagine the frustration. Like, one of the reasons that I didn't pursue a career as a foreign policy professional is that like it's so obvious what's going to happen i i don't think i'm i'm, I'm uh, this is not like some great insight into the future of, of world it's so it's so clear but the interests in the institutions and the ideologies are so powerful that you can't even have what is what is a, an obvious normal conversation i don't know how you deal with it every day with people just existing in a world that is just not the, so obviously not the world we are going to live in. It's not going to be a Chinese century. China has shown no interest in trying to do what, what a bunch of policymakers thought you could do in literally 1940. It's very clear that you can't like dominate the world. Like it's when they were thinking about 1850, you know, and they were thinking about, you know, 1650. It's just, it's just so clear. And I just don't, don't know. I mean, how how you deal with it? It was it was funny. I would I was talking to an unnamed foreign policy professional like a month or two ago, and and they were they were like, "Oh my God, everyone is so into Ukraine. It's Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine," and like no one outside of D.C. is talking about Ukraine. And people are right. pretending that it's like this gigantic shift in geopolitics when it so obviously is not. It, there's just an entire kayfabe to the discourse <laughs> in Washington D.C. That is very, I, I find personally difficult to deal with. Yeah, but but to answer your question, yes, people in D.C. are living in a world that doesn't exist because there's money and identity associated with living in that world.
1: I definitely, well, yeah, and the, the kayfabe is a good uh, way to describe it because they they try to to keep the kayfabe going even when everything is blowing up all around them. Um, I well, What I was going to get to with the American Century Point was uh, to to ask what are the dangers of trying to to sort of forcibly revive it uh, when the conditions are not uh, suitable for it.
2: I mean, it it just in in general, I think when one tries to make policies that have no relation to the material reality, things go south. Whether that's war, whether that's increased economic tensions. whether that's just bad vibes between countries which leads to xenophobia and racism at home i mean ultimately i i am a historical materialist i I am a marxist and i do think that the the primary cause if not the only cause in actual history things are complex but our material conditions they they shape the scene uh, and included in material conditions, I mean, for you, you realists out there, is that geography matters as well. You know, that's a material condition. Um, and I just think those are the, the foundational things. And as those change and you try to make policy that doesn't reflect those changes, it's just could go bad in a million different ways.
1: Sure. And uh, one more question about uh, about the, say the, the benefits that the American public gets or rather doesn't get from uh, our current foreign policy. Uh, you you make a, an interesting point about uh, Americans paying the price for the consequences of empire uh, without getting much in return. Uh, you 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 list some of those consequences as a militarized political culture, racism and xenophobia, police forces armed to the teeth with military grade weaponry, a bloated defense budget, and endless wars. Uh, and in addition to that, I would say that there's also this illusion of security, right, and that that we that Americans are conditioned to accept all of this because they're led to believe that they have to in order to be secure in, a, in an anarchic world, right? But that's not really true, given how physically secure the United States is. So how can restrainers get the public to see that?
2: If only I knew the answer to that question. Um, I mean, the question is, I mean, that's a generational project, right? Like any, any educational project is a generational one that's going to take years and going to require getting involved in... Um, A bunch of different institutions in different ways. I mean, the question though, is just to be, you know, purely strategic about it is, do you really even need the American public on your side? I I would say probably not. I I would say foreign policy is an incredibly elite directed field by design. You know, it's like macroeconomic policy. When was the last time you voted on a macroeconomic policy? Never. When was the last time you voted on a war? So I think that probably the the quickest way would be to, to to infiltrate the institutions in a meaningful way, and, and and in some sense, that'll just be a natural generational change. Like millennials are just more skeptical of U.S. power because they just have a less positive experience with the U.S. power. But again, the people who make careers and get to make careers in D.C. are status quo people who all go to the same ten institutions, so that's also a problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think it's a, it's it, I'm a very very pessimistic about this actually happening. I think the the. Just like capitalism was really good at convincing the world that it was the best system, imperialism has been really good at at carving out a space for itself within the American polity where it's basically almost unassailable at a fundamental level. It doesn't really affect people in their minds. Uh, there's huge constituencies that are organized to defend it. So I'm very pessimistic about things changing in the in the near term. I, I don't see how that would happen, barring some huge exogenous shock, which is always possible, of course.
0: Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. Really appreciate it. Um, I totally agree with you about this disconnect from what we talk about in Washington and what matters to regular Americans in their real lives. But we we can acknowledge that the wars over the last 20 years have been a massive resource suck. Um, and we've just put $13 billion worth of weapons and aid or even more aid than that, uh, but weapons certainly into Ukraine, into that war there over the last summer. And when we start seeing veterans come back over the years, you know, 20 years on, we're talking about burn pits, we're talking about lifetime injuries that US taxpayers have to pay for, but also families and communities are dealing with. So there is a visceral connection to foreign policy. And I think it's up to us to sort of like, make that clear. But all that aside, um, I would like to talk about the Biden administration for a second and this whole debate on the progressive side of the aisle over Ukraine and what the United States is obligated or not obligated to do. And I know there's been a lot of analysis over the last you know, summer about whether or not uh, progressives are really just neoconservatives uh, and under a different name that they really inherently believe that we have an obligation to intervene militarily when there is a humanitarian cause or a moral cause, and that the Biden administration, by setting up this idea of autocracies versus democracies, and that the United States should continue to lead a global rules-based order that challenges autocracies like Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban and the rest, Um, Is that just the flip side of the um, crusading Cold War warrior ethos on the right? Um, How do you see this all playing out?
2: Sure. Just to briefly take your first comment, um, I I would say there are are visceral consequences of the empire. They just don't reach enough people to make it a politically meaningful constituency. Uh, I mean, the smartest thing the empire ever did was end the draft. Once you end the draft and the middle class and the bourgeoisie no longer uh, get consequences of the war, you either have basically what's happened is the creation of a warrior class where they're kind of carved off and they suffer the consequences of war, but most people don't. And I actually think, I haven't looked at it a while, but something, a very high number of people who sign up for the military, like literally grow up in military towns. So you're having the geographic dispersal of, people who, who join the military. Uh, it's interesting. You're kind of creating a warrior class different mm-hmm. than the past ones, because a lot of times this is sort of war by, by robot. Um, but that's a different, that's a different story for another time. Um, but to go to, um, your other point, Kelly, uh, which was about sort of progressives, so I think, basically, neoconservatives and liberal internationalists slash progressives, they're, they're part of the same genealogy. It's this liberal internationalism that was formed by Woodrow Wilson in World War I and then disseminated throughout the American polity. Neoconservatives are the right of that ideology, and progressives are the center and the center left. You know, as everyone knows, neoconservatives are more into unilateralism; they have a more of a crusading spirit about them. Let's say, whereas liberal internationalists are more into international law and more into multilateralism. But ultimately, both have the same fundamental premise, which is that the United States should dominate the world. So that's what I w- that's what I would say uh, about that. Someone's uh, a quote-unquote progressive is arguing in favor of intervention in Ukraine. It's not pr- exactly surprising. There were a lot of Cold War liberals who were arguing for intervention in the 1950s and the 1960s. There was a lot, a lot of people on the right who were arguing for exact those exact same interventions. I, I mean, the real shift came, I think, between, let's say, 46 and 52, when both Henry Wallace on the left and Robert Taft on the right were effectively made, they were pushed out. Because both parties converged on the hegemonic position. So there's not that much difference fundamentally between neoconservatives and liberal internationalists, even though I know people in DC like, like these distinctions again, because it's like, you know, the narcissism of small differences, both ultimately believe the U S should dominate the world to me the genuine left position is to is to you know the 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 first rule of historical materialism is to know your moment and and if you if you know your moment and you know your history i mean i think the genuine left position has to be no intervention because any form of intervention intervention winds up shoring up a domestic military industrial complex which is a real thing that actually does exist it also winds up shoring up um the think tank the military intellectual complex you know what what we are all some some degree a part of in dc sort of the brain of the empire and if you're serious about ending the empire you've got to basically undercut its domestic sources and that will never happen with interventions abroad so again then it comes to the question of 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 Basically, people making their own cost-benefit analyses. Like to me, I, I think the medium and long-term benefits of getting rid of the military-industrial complex outweigh the short-term benefits of intervention. When you're in D.C. and your literal career is made by moving from foreign policy crisis to foreign policy crisis, you can't exactly argue that you're not going to get hired. Uh, and more, more, uh, moreover, in the moment, you know, to many people, uh, the ethical thing is to actually intervene for X or Y reason. But that is basically not taking time horizons into account, which is what, it's not, this is, this is the country of PT Barnum and Donald Trump. We're short-term thinkers. Uh, we're, we're, we're not exactly long-term planners here. And I think you see that mirrored in our foreign policy discussion where it's from crisis to crisis. The Crisis, and this has been the case since 1945. You could literally tell the story of American foreign policy is just moving from crisis to crisis. Ukraine now in two years it'll be something else. A few years ago it was ISIS, a few years before that it was uh, whatever Islamic jihadism, whatever. That we're just going to move to the next crisis. Um, and that's how people make money, and that's how people make careers, and that's how people write articles. So, uh, again, and <laughs> some to some degree, uh, it once again shows how capitalism just perverts everything. <laughs>
0: So I know this, it's a little bit in the weeds, but what do you say when um, a humanitarian interventionist within the democratic orbit says to you, we're not intervening in Ukraine, we're just giving them the tools to defend themselves against the Russian invasion. We are actually helping the, the victims save themselves uh, from further incursion. We're not intervening, we're not, we're not getting into a new war.
2: Yeah. It's just not a serious argument. I mean, this is the problem. And in, 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 like, I would just be like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's not that's not serious. But when you're in DC and like so many powerful institutions make that argument, I guess it, it's, it's more difficult to ignore. But again, th- then the, the debate goes, okay, do you think it's bad that we spend so much on the military? Do you think US hegemony has achieved the goals that were set out for it? Do you think we should be spending more on the military than on universal healthcare? And how you answer those questions, um, are to some degree our fundamental value propositions. So if you answer those questions differently than I do, then we're just like we're not even having the same arguments. So like what's the point? And that's, that's, that's ultimately how I approach a question like that. And so it's so um, obvious what what that the rhetorical gambit of of a claim like that is. It's like why even why even engage?
0: <laughs> well, it's the emotional argument and that seems to win in the public sphere so in the in yeah. the in the cnn well, sells, world it that wins. it sells
2: it sells it sells if it yeah. bleeds it leads you know i mean that's been true for since the advent of modern journalism and this this is a problem again with a capitalist press which many historians have been writing about now for a century when when you are when the the, the public information function becomes intimately connected to making money this is the profit this is this uh, and the profit motive this is the problem that always emerges in every society it's a different problem when you have only government funded things that that leads to a lot of different problems but in this in in this instance i think we have to acknowledge this is an obvious problem with the capitalist press and in some degree the fundamental problem is the profit motive you need to make money you need to make clicks what excites people in short term war blood saving people this romantic vision particularly it it particularly excites baby boomers who have been spending their entire lives being sad that they didn't get to fight in world war ii and this seems, i think that's that actually explains a lot of a lot of the the fervor around this it finally seems for the first time in decades that the united states is on the quote-unquote good guy's side and so people who spent their entire lives consuming pop culture and sometimes their parents stories about finding it like a noble war world war ii finally they get to be part of this noble conflict even though it is it's not world war ii you know and they're never going to be able to fight in world war ii and and really again it's the justification of the empire you know you want to have a a, you want to justify this massive behemoth and good guys versus bad guys is a way to do that
1: and I, i think that's a good place to end it and uh We'll uh, we'll wrap up there. Thanks very much, uh, Daniel Bessner. Uh, we appreciate you coming on and uh, check out uh, his American Prestige podcast uh, with Derek Davison uh, as well. And uh, thanks again.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Daniel. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.